Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. All right, stage two of Dan Wolf on Open Trailer Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Austin, and stage one was such a trip, as has happened a few times uh, throughout this project, where you hear a story and you're transformed to your younger self at that time when the story was originally unfolding. And for that moment, you are that person. And for me, it was listening to Dan tell a story about the May Motorsport Report, which had a huge influence on me. I was a budding broadcaster. I was enamored with radio. Uh, I loved racing, and I just wanted a piece of both. And I didn't know how I was going to get there. And I'm 12. I didn't really have to think about that. But the point is, I was, for a moment, for about 15 minutes, I was that 12-year-old kid who was sitting in the backseat of my parents' car listening to the AM station and more pissed off by the minute that the sun was going down because the AM signal would not be as strong. It doesn't mean that I gave up listening. It just meant I had to listen a little harder. It was a cool experience. So in stage number two, we talk about the ACT, uh, what became ACT, and the NASCAR North split. Dan's take on that. He ends up on TV, uh, talks about his son's racing, and we get into something that, you know, I uh, if you know me privately, you know my dissatisfaction for all things short track racing streaming and the platform and the different options that exist. No one has been able to convince me that it is anything but a sacrifice bunt in the grand scheme of the racing baseball game. A sacrifice bunt might get you out of the inning. It might get a runner on base, but it really is only going to get you to the next small thing. It has no regard for how you're going to win the game, and that's the most important thing. You don't get a point for for winning practice. You don't get a point for winning an inning. You get a you get a W for winning the game. And you know, hey, I'd love to be wrong on it. I really would, but and, and maybe I am. Maybe I am, and, and that's not why I don't share it publicly. Um, it does come out in this episode, though, uh, some of my opinions on that. And uh, the reason why I don't bring them up publicly is even though I have a platform and I obviously have a strong opinion about it, doesn't mean that just because I have the platform and I have the opinion that you need to hear it. I think it needs to be said. And hey, if I'm wrong, please come at me with fact. Please educate me. Um, I'm open-minded. I just, you know, and and the research that I've done and what I know about history being human's best teacher, if you pay attention to it, this um, this is the biggest threat to uh, not it's not the price of gasoline. It isn't the tire shortage or the part shortage. All those are big, but nothing like something that takes away from your personal investment in something that isn't always about you. Sometimes it's great to be at a racetrack for you, but you need to be there for the new person. And uh, I get into that a little bit. And, and maybe it's too much of a deep thought. Maybe it's not. I don't know. 
If you don't like it, we can just skip ahead. And I'm sure there are a number of other things that we agree on, which is what we should all be focusing on anyway. And and that's why Dan was such a great guest is because Dan and I can be polar opposites on – and we are – on certain topics, but we don't talk about those topics. Uh, we are so in step on other things and it's so – beneficial to focus on the things that you're in step with somebody and disregard the one or two like do you not talk to somebody because you disagree on one or two things or do you meet somebody you're like that person's a jerk because you know so and so thinks this way about the thing that I don't think that way about and you forego the entire relationship and you 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 don't realize that that person probably has about seven or eight different layers to them and maybe you agree on six or seven of the layers but because you're so fixated on the one thing that you just disagree on you don't give the other layers a chance and that that means you're missing out on the human experience but this is not a motivation podcast this is that was i just a rant i got on anyway thank you so much for the support on patreon um when I say thank you for the support, it isn't just to gloss over and say, um, you know, we're able to buy gas and, you know, 100% goes back into the podcast. All very true. Uh, but I wanted to be as candid as possible and, and tell you how much it means that you um, take your hard-earned money and you say, you know what, this is something uh, that is deserving of it. And that isn't false humility or humbleness or whatever. It's... Uh, it's just sincerity saying, you know what? It really lights a fire under my ass on days when I don't want to do this or I'm like, eh, maybe I'll cut the season a little short. And it gets harder and harder because what happens is when you become – okay, this now kind of ties into the streaming thing. When you become invested in someone and, and if you're a Patreon member and you contribute to this podcast, I feel that we're invested. And and I have a – I wouldn't say obligation that has a negative connotation to it. I have a responsibility to not only um, the listeners, but especially the Patreon members, especially if you're putting up uh, some of your contributions to, because you enjoy the product, well, then I feel like a fraud if I just discontinue it, right? I mean, there are some people that will take your money. I'm not one of them. Um, So thank you so much for the support. It actually has elongated the season of Open Trailer Podcast. And... um, yeah, man. I mean, it's weird. I mean, I've done this for a very, very long time. I've never felt more weird about accepting. I think that's it. I think I'm just sometimes weird about accepting. <laughs> I think we all are. Anyway, too much deep thought. Let's get into the podcast. Dan Wolf, stage number two. Enjoy. Who was the person that you were surprised by the most who said, hey, Dan Wolf, I love that May Motorsport report. We're coming up for the 250. Uh, I want to talk about, uh, you know, my sponsors or the race or whatever. Who was the person that you were like, okay, we're swimming in this pool now? There was a lot of personality there and a lot of conflict between the tours. And the one man who was best at keeping it going was Tom Curley. Because Tom Curley was a consummate Irishman, and um, he could fight with you one minute and hug you the next. And, uh, however, he was never afraid to take the minute. There was a lot of, of 
when you got into this, and if you've if ever in your radio career ever dealt with people that up the hill that are a little more famous, they can be quite pretentious and they can be real prickly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would get these things where Jim Hunter was here and he was the director of NASCAR. And, you know, they didn't work any nonsense. Everything was their way. They were in control of everything. And you couldn't challenge them. And and, and, and Bob Bear, he was a grumpy son of a gun. You didn't mess with Bob Bear. I've, I've dealt with him face to face. And he was a very powerful, formidable man. And he didn't allow you to challenge him. Didn't care for that. Mm. Curly, on the other hand, was an extremely engaging Irishman that you could fight with and have a big disagreement, and then the following week you could all be the best of friends. Mm. And he was the most consistent guy. The NASCAR guys had a tendency to be distant. And the other thing between the, the Bush tour and, and the American Canadian tour is that with the Bush tour, you ended up talking to different people. So you weren't talking with the same person in charge each time you had an interaction with the tour. Mm. With Curly, if something important was happening in the American-Canadian tour, Curly was there, and you got to talk to Curly. He didn't have some assistant that you had to talk through. Tom was there, and I really liked Tom Curly, although he could drive you nuts um, because he was was pretty... uh, what was the craziest thing that Tom yelled at you about? Oh, it, it, it really, uh, uh, he got annoyed with me a few times, but it wasn't really the annoyance thing. The, the, the most memories I had with Curly hmm. was the times when we would go off the air and get into fits and gales of laughter because I was nice enough not to ask the wrong question on the air, even though he knew I knew mm-hmm. this, and, and I wasn't going to start the the cuckastorm on the air. And that was that's the hard part about doing podcasts and doing radio shows and doing anything with race cars, is that um, when there is an issue where there's a lot of passion on both sides of it, um, it's best not to have your radio show or podcast have an opinion on that. You, it's it's okay if you let the the different parties uh, state their case, but you 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 don't want to jump into it because you become the bad guy, and it's tough because at that point there was this giant competition between the NASCAR Bush and the American Canadian Tour. Which is something I wanted to touch on. You Now, for those who never heard the main motorsport report, we're talking 1986, first year of act. Then Bush comes back, or NASCAR comes back with the Bush North Tour in 87, 88, 89. And these are two tours that are drawing uh, 35, 40 cars each time. And I don't think... Well, those who lived it remember the pressure that it was. I mean, it was well, the pressure cooker it was. But just paint the picture of Tom Curley and, and, and just Bush North versus ACT and how it related to May Motorsport Report. Well, how it relates is that our show f- came into effect in the middle of this range war. But you need to go back a couple of years before that. Um, the, the American-Canadian tour was everything that the old NASCAR North Tour was because the Tom Curley was NASCAR, the NASCAR North Tour. Mm. And Tom Curley made a judgment at the Speedway 
and the judgment went against Randy LaJoy. Oh, we're talking Catamount. In Catamount. Mm. And LaJoy protested it to NASCAR. And NASCAR overruled Curly. And Curly was a nice enough guy, but he was Irish enough that if you overruled him and embarrassed him, um, you weren't going to be friends anymore because Irishmen can be very prideful. And so that was what caused the fact. And Curly said, the heck with you guys and proceeded to go non-NASCAR and go his own way because he wasn't going to be rebuked that way in public. And so NASCAR didn't pull out. It was Curly that took the sanction. It was it was it was Curly's actions that caused NASCAR. Mm. The, it it just turned into a nasty divorce after the Joy lawsuit. Right. So let's forget who was the guiltiest one in the divorce, but they were both very prideful. And NASCAR doesn't. Uh, if NASCAR says something mm. in those days, what Bill French said was God. He had spoken on the mount. The tablets were done. So here we have Curly, the defiant Tom Curly, um, and it's broken up. And the NASCAR Bush North thing was a grudge series uh, because they were going to squash Curly like a bug. Because Tom comes right back, doesn't skip a beat. 1986 has these steel-bodied cars, has enormous success, and then 87, the Bush North series shows up at Oxford. As as a grudge. Hmm. As a grudge. So now we have competing tours in super late models. It's kind of like history repeating itself, just on a smaller well, scale. And what happened was, in 1986... I go from being a guy who's a race fan and, and a race sponsor, and, and it said the name of my company on the on the wall at Beach Ridge, and I'm loosey-goosey, not really involved here too much. And now I have a radio show, and I go to the races, um, and I had started to dress a little better when I went to the races and, and take a little more formal thing and, and, and bring a notepad so that I could make notes for the radio show. And... Uh, they had the Pine Tree 100. And... 86? 86. And there was a TV production company from Massachusetts to come up to film it. And if you have ever been to Star, the talent, insider joke, because they, they, everyone's either crew or talent. So if you can hold okay. a microphone, you're now talent. Yes. So the talent for the day was supposed to be John Spence Sr. And John Spence was stretched too far and didn't want to come all the way to Beach Ridge to do this. But I don't know whose fault it was, whether it was a breakdown of communication, but the guy, the producer of the TV show, Steve Barr, is in Beach Ridge. He's ready to shoot this race, and he's got no one to hold a microphone. He has no talent. At that time, Mark Thomas, Marco, the announcer mm-hmm. for past for so many years, had the racing paper. And he was there as a reporter for the racing paper. And he knew uh, this TV producer from Star Speedway and other tracks. He week. had the racing paper by then? I thought it might be. Wasn't he still a Speedway scene? Uh, 
Well, he was the press guy. Okay, yeah. So the TV guy says, hey, my talent didn't show up. Have you got anybody that can hold a microphone? And Marco said, oh, I know a guy. I just saw him in the, in the pits here. I'll go get him, and I'll just tell him he has to do it for you. And <laughs> so he said, come on, the TV guy needs somebody that can hold a mic. And oh, I said, God. what? And he said, just come with yeah. me. And he introduced me to this Steve Barr. And on a lot of my stuff, if you see anything on YouTube, it will say Dan Wolf Archive in memory of Steve Barr. Uh, Steve was the library director at Merrimack College in Andover, Massachusetts. Mm. They were the ones who had the TV equipment because they had a a uh, video uh, course that they ran at the out of the library. And so he had great studios. They had the TV truck. Uh, they had all the equipment you would need. Plus, they had uh, a group of college students who would take care of all of the video editing and collecting. And this was on three-quarter inch tape. When you take a picture at your phone now, you can send it. Well, in 1986, if you filmed a race, you filmed it onto film, and you put that film in a FedEx envelope and you sent it to someone. And that was as fast as film went because nothing was digital. Like the networks right. could send stuff long distances, but no one local had any capability other than you put it in the machine. So uh, I did that first gig. Did you know what you were doing? Like, how did you? Do, how did that night go? Uh, that was the night that Jamie Obi hit the parked car on the backstretch for probably the most spectacular uh, accident ever at Beach Ridge. And trivia note, it was Jeff Hansen that was parked there, the 99. That The clip of that mm. is really comical because Marco and I are calling the race, and it's on YouTube under Dan Lavasser. Okay. And when the accident happens, Steve, on the clip that he sent me, did not turn the mic off after. So Marco and I are being quite four-letter accurate about oh. just exactly what kind of an accident this was. Yeah. And so... What happened was, is I I uh, made that acquaintance, and before I left, he asked for my phone number. Back then, wow. you, you didn't have the communication. You seem like a guy that had a um, like a phone inside a suitcase, like in the nineteen eighty seven. Like I just picture you as that guy that had a actually, suitcase phone. Actually, I usually left it in the car. You had one, didn't you? Because it was a bag phone. <laughs> bag phone, that's what it is. Uh, okay, yeah. and, and any of you young people who are mad because your phone isn't thin enough, uh, I want you to go out in the garage and get the car starter pack. Yeah. Because the the car starter pack with the with the jumper cables on it, that battery weighs the same as a, as a bag phone. How much did a bag phone run you? Like every month. Oh, it wasn't the bag phone. I think it was five or six hundred dollars for the equipment, but it was a dollar a minute either direction. Right. So people would call you, and you would try and get them off the phone before you went broke. Right. Uh, because it was a dollar a minute either direction. It was like being on a cruise ship. Yeah. And uh, so yeah, I was kind of savvy that way, and that started the relationship with TV. I knew you had a bag phone. I didn't know, but I know. And it was. For me, the TV part was the one of the greatest things that ever happened. Uh, S Steve had been at the mercy of getting talent from whatever 
track he was working with. And the idea that someone would be there and work with his people was very appealing because when they came to town to do a race, they would bring two or three cameramen and mm. the truck and the whole thing. It was a big production. And, and of course, they had the editing capability back at the shop. So we got to do a lot of fun things. And I got to meet a lot of great people. Um, uh, interviews with... Richard Petty and Davey Allison and Bobby Allison. You ever get nervous? Rusty Wallace. I haven't got a nervous bone in my body once I start to work. Okay. If you'd like to see me be nervous, have tell me that we're going to start working in a half an hour. Oh, boy. And, and I'll be nervous for the next half hour. Once we start to work, I would sit in the pit road at Beach Ridge, mm. and, and my legs would bounce because I was so nervous waiting to go out on the track. And as soon as I get out there... I wasn't nervous anymore. But waiting makes me nervous. Working makes me happy. Someone says that you're going to interview Johnny Rutherford. How much of a heads up do you have on that? Actually, that is one of the, the I would say, the, the proudest moment in TV that I had. Hmm. In 1988 or 9, Johnny Rutherford, four-time indie champion, was now subjected to all of these rich people whose fathers owned millions of acres of oranges who come in and bought IndyCar rides and could not get a full-time IndyCar ride. Hmm. He was driving for Mac Tools on a, a partial season race thing, and the rest of the time, he had to go to these tank racetracks and promote Mac Tools. So, the press booth at Star was very small then. So we get there, and Steve says, Johnny Rutherford's here, and I want an interview. John Rutherford IV shows up, and he is surly as can be. Really? And uh, he's just not friendly or nice at all. He just didn't want to be there. And if you go on the backside, Star's the only place we're on the backside of the uh, uh, grandstand. There's grandstand benches that you can sit on on the backside behind the grandstand area. And he was really unhappy, and I asked him for an interview, and he kind of blew me off, and, and he didn't say no, but he just was, was surly. And I said, let's go out back and sit where it's quiet out of the press booth for a minute. And I, I pointed to the camera guy and I, that's great when you're the talent, you just point yeah. at a camera guy and move your fingers and they magically show up with equipment because you're going to say something important. And we went down back behind and it was kind of quiet. It was well before the races were started. And I looked him in the face and I said, um, I can understand why you're upset it's got to stink being a four-time Indy 500 winner and some schmuck with cash is driving the car on the circuit that you should be driving and you're here peddling tools. And he looked at me and I said, but you know what? Um, I think it's still a story and I want to interview and I'd ask you to make the best of this with me if you could. And he looked at me and it kind of rolled his eye, a little bit of an eye roll. And we started talking about how difficult and I asked the hard questions you know what's it like to be here at Star Speedway while some guy with with a lot of cash has the ride you should have with your abilities and credentials and we had an honest talk about it and 
So I said, let's go for a walk and see people. It's kind of glum up there in the press booth, being away from everybody. Well, when you bring Johnny Rutherford into an open-wheel speedway pit, mm. everyone's paying attention. And so everyone came over to us, and I kind of brought him around and, and uh, said hi to the different people. And I looked at him, and I said, hey, you want to drive one of these things? And he looked at me, and he said, nah. And I, I looked over, and I can't remember whose car it was, and I said, hey, uh, Johnny wants to take a few laps. You, can you get him hooked up? Absolutely. Was this a super modified or a street In stock? A super. Or? Super, okay. And um, so now all of a sudden he's energized because he's got something to do and he's not stuck in the middle of nowhere doing nothing. So he goes out in the super and he does four laps. The last two are right on the track record. Just a, 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 you know, a, a hair under whatever speed was. And, and they're, they're timing him up top and they're going, unbelievable. Nobody's ever come here and run four laps and been fast enough to be the fastest guy here on the third lap. Wait a minute. Was it Dick Batchelder's team car? Dick Batchelder's team car? I believe it might have been. I, I think I was there that night, if, and, it, if that was the case. And um, so he took a couple of laps and then we had a great time afterwards. Mm. And for me, it was, we. I've got that interview and I'm going to, I'm going to take that interview out. But notably for me mm. was the fact that um, we had this conversation and, and I had said to him, you know, maybe somebody needs to do something so that, so that you can drive your way into an Indy car instead of buying your way in. Well, if you will recall, not long afterwards came the Indy Racing League with the GM motors and the lower prices and the, and and more American drivers and less uh, yeah it put Cartwright out of business and basically. guess who was the the president of Indy Racing Johnny League? Rutherford Johnny Rutherford yeah and so he he took that and so for me that was a great um, great moment the the funniest moment was when they had the Indy race or whatever it was, open wheel race at Loudoun. Yeah, it was Indy. Uh, we got invited to come down to that, to the hotel in Copley Square that has the, the mall and the and the big mm-hmm. glass thing that goes. So it's all this fancy schmancy stuff that Bob Bear's putting on. And they've got these guys. So we're trying to do as many interviews as possible with these famous people and everything. And um, Who are you working for at this point? Nesson? Or? This... this well, my whole relationship was with Steve Barr, who was Mecca Productions, uh, Merrimack College thing, and they had a public television branch for most of uh, Essex and Middlesex County and, and a couple of low counties in New Hampshire. Plus, the show was on Channel 50 in Manchester, which back then, cable channels had numbers. Yeah, NDS. Um, and what happened was, we would prepare our weekly race week show, and I could not go to Merrimack College every week to go down for the productions. So we would go to a race, and if we went to the Oxford 250... I kept a notepad with me, and I kept a note 
pad going of what laps there was lead changes, what laps there were uh, accidents, things that happened. And at the end of the night, the camera people would come in after we'd been to Victory Lane and I would check with the camera people. Lap 65, did you get the 61 car spinning? No, yes, no. Have we got it? Yeah, we got it. Okay. And I would check off the things that we had. Hmm. Then I would sit either on a grandstand bench or upstairs in the press booth, and I would take a legal pad and write the voiceover for the race report for that week. And then I would sit into a camera to get the mic feed and I would read the report that I prepared which I would start race number 7 of the 1977 Mm. American Canadian Tour the so and so 100 at whatever speedway and in the time trial so and so did a whatever and I would run down through a 3 or 4 minute voiceover Steve would take that and the footage back to Merrimack College and then turn that into my report for that race and match the uh, video that they had. And I would do uh, walk-on, stand-up starts for a race sometimes before the race, and then whatever race I was at, I would always end the race by saying in uh, at Oxford Plains Speedway for race week, I'm Dan Wolf, mm-hmm. And then we would stop because we were giving footage to Ben Dodge for his show. We were, we were trackside. He was race week. And Ben, who was the announcer for the Modifieds now, was also running the track at Agawam where Six Flags is now. Yeah, Riverside. At Riverside. And uh, we would send him the clip. So when I would do the clip whatever other people were sending out I would look in and I would start and I would say for trackside I'm Dan Wolf and I would say for race week I'm Dan Wolf and I would say (laughs) for for whatever and then we would bundle that up and of course everything is so instant now in those days local racing was only covered nationally on ESPN Sports Center and that was on Wednesday night so Steve would prepare our race reports on Monday. They would go into a FedEx envelope, and they would be FedEx to ESPN. They would get them. And I was trained to hold you at arm's length when I interviewed you to try and keep me out of the shot, remind you not to answer the question by saying, thanks, Dan because we're going to send this to someone else. Mm -hmm. And I would hold you back and keep myself out of the show, and I was taught to pause. I would say, okay, we're going to go now. Pause. Bob had a great night out there and was managed to get in the lead at lap 88 and start the interview and hold the guy out. We would send my report with a voiceover, and I would laugh on Wednesday night when we watched it on ESPN because... Um, they would say, we talked to so-and-so in Victory Lane. And they would just listen to what I say and say, and we asked him how he was able to get around the leader on lap 87. Yeah, I know. And, and he would answer the question. So uh, we did, we provided a lot of uh, material for ESPN. And 
Another part that we're quite proud of, and Steve Barr was responsible for this, but at that point, we had the most national coverage of regional racing ever. And um, one of the things that happened over the last 25 or 30 years is the Loudon kind of overshadowed the rest of what happened in New England and the speedways did not invest in the new technology to get people and collect footage and send it out to the outlets to get that TV coverage because it was extremely important because when you were able to turn on national TV and see the Oxford 250 and the race at Catamountain or in the race mm-hmm. uh, at Beach Ridge, you know, this was, this was, was really heavy stuff. And we had so much fun doing it. I met so many great people. I was telling you about that time in Boston when we were in the fancy place. Yeah, I was going to bring it back to that and saying, what was the funniest thing out of that? Well, the funniest thing that ever happened was uh, Ari Leyendyke was there. And he was really good open wheel He's the hot guy at the time. And he was kind of like a big, tall, handsome man. And and, uh, he seemed friendly. So he says to us, can we? This is just rubber chicken. Can we blow this and go find a real bar somewhere? And he was trying to get us to abandon the uh, the, Bob the, the press conference and yeah. just go off. He said, I've never been to Boston. Do you know your way around? And he was trying to get us to take him for a tour of Boston rather than to do our work. And so when you, when you meet these people, and it isn't always beautiful. Hmm. I, I can remember in the 80s, Richard Petty was the Grand Marshal at Oxford. And everyone who was a NASCAR fan back then saw his famous crash where he rode the fence and tore the fence down. Mm. Well, we so glorify our sports heroes that we didn't want to know that Richard Petty was hurt. We just wanted to know that he still had a cowboy hat and he still looked good sunglasses and and everything so here comes Richard Petty to the Oxford 250 as Grand Marshal shortly after he'd really been beaten to smithereens in that crash 88 and he went he went out front and said a few things and waved to the crowd and talked a little bit and rode around in the car and he came back in and it was finally got in line for my turn to interview him and we needed a little footage because he was there and you had to have a little footage and uh, I asked him how he liked Oxford and and if he could remember driving there back in the 60s and a little question like that and he was pale and I made a decision and I just kind of moved the mic back and I said you look like you're beat exhausted and he said you just don't know how hard it is for me to do these things, that accident was more than most people know that it is. Mm. And it was so human and so real. And here's a guy uh, who, he didn't need the money. He didn't need anything. He just had to be in the middle of everything. He still does. He's like, what, 84? And he he doesn't own his team anymore, but he's still the figurehead of Richard Petty Motorsports with... Um G GMS and yeah. the the part of it is that um, 
One of the things about what's gone wrong in racing is that it's become so impersonal. There was a couple of things about Richard Petty that are very interesting. My brother was best friends with the with the carrier that owned Bristol and back in the in the day. And in 76, I went to the Bristol race. And because my brother was friends with the guy, I mean, he had his own uh, uh, helipad inside the speedway where he could come and go. And he had a, a, a my brother had quite a bit of money and he'd, hmm. they were quite on the thing. And I got full pass, anywhere pass. And so I got to talk to different people. And when the race got over, everyone's leaving. And you park in the infield at Bristol, and you might as well not try and leave for an hour or two because it's just such a line trying to get out. And I'm there, and I hear a motor start. And around comes the 43 car. So I walk over, and the in, it, the infield at Bristol in those days was an Armco barrier. And I walked over to the barrier, and along the apron of the track comes the 43 car, doing maybe 25, 30 miles an hour. It's full of little kids and Richard. And he's laughing and talking, and they're going around for laps. And he keeps doing this until there's no more little kids that want to go for a ride. Meanwhile, other people are all loaded, and their car's in the carrier, and they're they're halfway home. And so uh, he's out there giving rides to little kids. And... So I had to go to the bathroom, and I head over toward the bathroom. And in in Bristol, there was not only a bathroom, but they also had a shower room that was for the drivers. And there's a line for the shower room. I think to myself, why are pedestrians going to the shower in the infield? I look in, on a bench, driver's suit down around his waist and the arms tied together, is Richard Petty signing autographs for anyone who would want one. And one of the things that Richard Petty said that that remains with why he is such a an icon in racing. If you ever notice autographs by Richard Petty, how distinctive they are. Mm-hmm. He said back in the 60s that a fool scribbles his name he said, these people came to see us race. They want something personal from you. Write your name so that they can read it and don't have to explain to their friends who signed it. And that kind of hands-on building of a race industry is so different than... Uh, paying fifty dollars to go into a place where you can can get in line to get an autograph from someone, and you have to buy something from them to get it. And people that uh, have a press secretary, you can't talk to them, you can't walk up to them. They're just way too important for anyone like us. Well, the funny part about it is, is that it's the ordinary person that pays for racing. It's not the the superstar that pays for it. It's the ordinary person because we didn't all buy tickets if we didn't attend. And, of course, I had a great relationship with TV. And, as I said, met so many great people. I've got so many mm. things that I want to transcribe, interviews with, with famous people. I can't things. wait to see any of it. And, but I will say this about it. 
that as for short track racing in America today, as good as TV was for me, TV has been a big part of why local racing has been struggling for years, and that's because NASCAR vacuums out a billion dollars in TV money, and it leaves practically no TV budget for for local racing. And it's very difficult to get, I mean, and there's some great companies that do pay-per-view and stuff, but it's a lot pay-per-view is a wonderful thing but it can't be broad market because broad market doesn't isn't interested enough to pay a big pay-per-view fee to see something Mm -hmm. broad market for promoting your sport is when espn has a story about a race in maine and it's on national tv for a million people so you know this is your podcast i will say that and again coming back to not having an opinion on it the number one threat to short track racing isn't people complaining amongst ourselves on social media. That doesn't make the dentist who is at best a casual race fan who wants to take his family to the racetrack on Saturday night. He's not going to go, oh man, I really saw those guys tearing each other apart on a Tuesday. I better not go there on a Saturday. Like it, you know what? What it is is people who have the option now to watch a streaming platform at their local short track, and they do that. That is not being part of an active guardian of something that we like. An active guardian is going to be there. It's going to sit in the rain. Is going to pay the ticket. Is going to be the warm body for the new person that comes in. Because nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. And if you're just sitting at home on the couch, you're being part of the problem and you're not being part of the solution. And that is the number one pet peeve that I have in racing and how TV, specifically short track racing, because we don't have the billion dollar TV thing. We're dealing with local independent owners who have a small profit margin and you're taking away from that small profit margin if you're sitting at home. If a racetrack gets 30%, even if they are getting 30% of the royalties from a uh, streaming platform, that's still 70% less than what you would do if you would show up. But that's the difference between broad market and small market. If if you're getting 30% of pay-per-view, it's not going to be an offset. Mm-hmm. And it's going to let people not come to your speedway, and it's going to reduce you. But... If you're getting a million dollar a year contract or a five million dollar a year contract through NASCAR on NBC, then these bigger tracks do well by it. But the other thing about small tracks in racing is that local media has become more expensive. In those days that we talk about, the good old days, the Halcyon days, whatever you want to call Mm -hmm. them, those days... Beach Ridge had an ad in, in the local newspaper every week. Uh, for specials, they would have something on the radio or something, or occasionally a, a, a something on TV, and that became really expensive. But the other thing was that the speedways did not react quickly enough to the fact that um, you needed a press person. Yes, you need an announcer for Saturday night who can engage the crowd that you've brought there. But you need a press person because when you look at when I raced, 
if you got in the top five or the top three, you knew that your name was going to be in, in the local newspaper mm-hmm. on Sunday. But after a while, the track guys got lazy and stopped sending the thing out at 11 o'clock at night to the to the newspaper or radio show and so now it's not in the box scores now your mom can't read your name in the paper and see that you raced your fans can't say wow bob made it in Mm -hmm. in the race last night um and one of the things i have a a great relationship with travis lee over at channel eight and he's a nice man but his group his radio station, his sports programming, does really not have a lot of emphasis from them for him to go out and get auto racing. Nope. And so, as as small short track racers, we need someone that can go engage the local radio guy, the local TV guy, to get on their sports broadcast. And uh, so we kind of missed that a little bit, and part of that we complain about social media social media has made it much easier to get information out to race fans however that's where you were talking about because you were talking about the difference between your base Mm -hmm. your fans the people that are going to come anyway And some person who may not have heard of you or is on the fence and might go if someone reminds them. And this is part of why I've always been so keyed on entry-level racing. Everything wears out after a while. If you bowl, after a while you don't bowl as much as you used to. So if you're, even if you're an avid race fan... Uh, you know, I, I saw a comment when Beechridge closed about, uh, I haven't been there in years, but I can't understand why it closed. Yeah, okay. you're not part uh, of the solution. Uh, right? You haven't been there in years and you can't understand why it closed. Well, yeah. I can. Mm-hmm. And But with with street devils, with, with any kind of entry-level racing, you get new people from different walks of life and new people that are exposed and... So, you know, it doesn't matter to the guy who owns the Speedway if you paid $12 to get in because you're an avid race fan or because you're because Bob, the guy you work with, just bought a little cheap race car and it's his first race. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that there's a posterior sitting in that seat. And, and you know, it's hard to uh, face the fact that one of the very few things that has not seen inflation over the years is the price of a seat at a short track. Not really. And their um, insurance has gone up about 70%. Right. But but in many cases, um, when you look at short track seat prices, remember now that Beach Ridge used to have eight or ten special races that were $25, $30 to get in the grandstand. Mm-hmm. And now they have, a, you know, a, a local track will have a few races that are expensive, but if they don't bring their 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 baseline 
Uh, I think at Oxford they have a $40 family pack or something, and, and, and there was always the $10 and $12 NASCAR nights at Beach Ridge. And m- most of the, the normal weekly races that are not some special tour event are marginally what tickets sold for 20 years ago. And that made it real difficult because everything else went up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, price of fuel, price of property taxes, your insurance. People don't take this stuff into consideration. We're just beating the drum here. I know this is your podcast, Dan. And one of the things that I know you're most proud of is you've had – actually, there are two questions I have. I have one quick question I want to to ask at the end. Uh, Just remind me. This is more about – I was going to say your second act, but you've had basically about five at this point. And the most recent one, Street Devils aside, is Johnny Wolf becoming a champion. Well, everyone who has kids can have no greater joy than to have the kids be successful. We were going along. I had I had a go-kart for Johnny when he was eight or nine years old. And we tried that a little bit, and it was okay. And... Uh, our friend over at Wyman's Auto Body, Joe Wyman, his son Matt was running in the Mad Bombers. Mm. And Matt decided he was done with the Mad Bombers and he was going to uh, do some wildcat racing. Is that where the 42 came from? And that was the 42. Oh. Well, Joe and I have been friends since the 70s. Um, Matt moved up in a division and... Uh, Joe said, Joe liked Johnny because Johnny's a really nice kid. And Johnny was just 15. And Joe said, uh, Why don't you take that white car, that 42 car for Johnny? And I said, Well, I don't know. And he said, Just take it. Don't worry about it. Um, and he gave Johnny the car. And he said, The only thing I want back is the motor because it had a real good Hinkson motor in it. And, uh, that he had paid some pretty good money for, probably. Mm-hmm. And another one of the engine builders that that was successful at Beach Ridge. Um, and so it was like, okay, someone just gave us a race car. I guess we're going to have to go race. And that first year with that white 42, it was a 15-year-old. Remembering now that in 2006, there were 30-plus cars in each of the two groups. Mm-hmm. And every race was a demolition derby. And that poor white car got demolished. beaten seven ways to Sunday. Mm. So for the 2007 season, we built the black Monte Carlo number 42 in 2007. Now, at the last race at Beach Ridge, Johnny ran that car that we built in 2007. That's the only car he's run since. All of those seasons, the wins, the championship, all of that was in that same car that we did in, in 2007. The G-Body. And that was a, 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 a... You know, he was so much better suited to be a race car driver than I am. Why? And I'm temperamental. I'm impetuous. Um, I'm impatient. Yeah. You know, when when you go out into, into a race car and 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 you're rough um, and you're impatient, you're just going to be in trouble all the time. Mm. And Johnny is the epitome of patience. Um, and he would always say to me, "Don't say anything to anybody here. I don't want to 
be smashing cars out on the track because you told somebody something they didn't want to hear in the pits. Shut up. Don't say anything. Um, and his motto always was that if you run over people all the time, um, if you're having a good day, they'll run over you. And he got to be one of the guys at Beach Ridge in the Mad Bombers that you could walk up to anybody and say, if you could ride side by side for 10 laps with anybody out there, who would you want to go one-on-one for 10 laps with? And they'd all say Johnny. That's cool. Because um, you, would, you, could, you could rub, you could scrape, you could use the entire track from the inside to the very outside, mm-hmm. but everybody would finish all 10 laps because that's the way Johnny rolls. And, of course, Johnny, in the eighth grade, met Caitlin. And they have been together ever since. That's amazing. Now with two girls, seven and nine. Mm. And, of course, Johnny had the car, and I was someplace, and I saw an old Monte Carlo. It was an ugly orange thing. And and I had to have it, and we loaded it on the trailer, and I bought it for little money, as, as she did back then. And it was sitting there, and I said, Johnny, do you think Caitlin would like to have a, a ladies' league car? <laughs> And he said, I don't know, I'll ask her. Well, her stepfather, Rob Walker, was always been at Beach Ridge and, mm-hmm. and raced a little back in the day in the Wildcats and um, uh, was always involved with it. And so she said, yeah, I'd like it. So Johnny and Caitlin and I cleaned out the interior parts and got the thing stripped down. And her stepfather came over and said, oh, that's going to be her race car? Uh yeah, he said, mind if I take it over to my Little Falls Auto and, and uh, look it over a little bit? Well, he never brought it back. He just built her a race car. And, and <laughs> uh, uh, it was a, a great thing because for couples, especially couples that have been together, you have mm. to remember now that Caitlin got her first win long before Johnny did. And got her first championship long, long before, before Johnny, Johnny did. Yes, and she raced and had fun with it. And then, um, when their oldest daughter was born, she kind of went into mommy mode, and she wasn't quite mm. as interested in having a race car. We still got that car, yeah, and uh, it's still sitting there waiting in case she ever changes her mind. But championship night, two thousand sixteen. What was that like for Dad? Okay. Um, over the course of 2016 Mad Bomber Varsity season, it was pretty clear that um, it, there were two guys that were hot. One was, was the 38, Jason Kennedy, mm-hmm. and the other was the 42, Johnny Wolf. And... Um, we were hustling and doing everything we could and Jason had the help and talent of uh, Dan McCaig and his group behind Mm -hmm. him so they knew the right things to do and how to prep a race car and 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 how to win a championship so it was nip and tuck and the last couple of races Johnny had to count points because it was that close and it came down to that final race and Johnny had enough car to win that final race that night um, 
and the championship pended on uh, uh, a couple of things. One, uh, he got around sideways with Chris Burgess, and Burgess tucked him back into line and waved, and and uh, they kept going. And number two, he just got on Jason's bumper and just stayed with him. That's got to suck if you're Jason. He he went in four points ahead. Yeah. And knew we could if you finished on his bumper, he knew we would win. And you know, championships are hard from the announcer's booth because when they're close like that, you need to keep your mouth closed until you get the word from race control that the championship's been decided before you go saying even tentatively, it looks like our champion's going to be. Because if you get it wrong, mm. woo, are you going to be the unpopular announcer for that one? So in 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 Caitlin's case and in Johnny's case, both, Caitlin won by four points and Johnny won by two. So course i was was almost blue because i'd been holding my breath from (laughs) warm-ups yes and when it's that close on points if you recall you were in the booth and they did not immediately announce because they wanted to go over this because with two points difference between the winner and the other guy you want to check this and make sure that you you're 100 percent right before you make the announcement it was so darn close the place was packed i didn't want to make that call in front of thousands of people and um the the clock is ticking and finally Things are going back down a little bit, and mm-hmm. finally they you go ahead and announce that he's the champion. And I breathed for the first time all night. Um, mm-hmm. There were two uh, uh, hometown hero uh, pitchers in Speedway Illustrated about Johnny winning his first race after 10 years, winning his first championship. Yeah, I remember that. One of the things about this, and it's on my wall, and I love the photo. It's a Jamie Williams photo. I don't know how Jamie happened to do it, but Johnny won the feature. You can see that the car is absolutely immaculate. There's not a speck of dirt on it. He never touched anybody. Mm-hmm. And he's there with the checkered flag. And if you look carefully at the photo, in the background in the photo is his brother, wow, his wife, his children, mother, grandmother, and... They're all there watching him win. And part of the thing about that is in that Perseverance Pays thing in in Speedway Illustrated is Johnny saying that there's nothing quite like winning a race at your home track in front of your family. Yeah, a family that was there and didn't see it on TV. And one of the things that I'm also proud of is uh, I was able to get an article published uh, in Speedway Illustrated about... Malcolm Rafam, remembering Malcolm. Yeah. And it's funny because uh, you are factor into that story because I had collected up some great stories about how Malcolm was and tried to make the story describe Malcolm as a person and try and get the essence of who he was. 
And a lot of people said, oh, I didn't know you and Malcolm were friends. It was hard to be friends with Malcolm. He was a tough tech man, and we had a race car. So it was like we weren't close buddies, but I'd always gone along with him. And I wanted to capture in the story about him the fact that Malcolm was a positive thing in racing because he could... You could be in an argument with him about some technical thing, about something he was trying to accomplish in tech, and three hours later, if you saw him, there, there was no grudge kept. And, mm-hmm. and uh, it, you know, if you treated him with respect, he treated you with respect back. It's just he he had to make the de- Tech man's a hard job. You have yeah. to make a decision. And when he did, but I was very proud to get that published in a national magazine. And, and uh, I also had published in... Uh, in Marco's racing paper, a story that I did about um, Mike Murphy, who was mm-hmm. my gym teacher and, and a dear friend for his whole life, and um, it was nice. One of the you know you talk about memories that you get. I did that story about Mike from a personal point of view in Marco's racing paper, and uh, I still have mm. a note that I got from his wife Julie thanking me for the article you know and those are the kind of things when you do the press and the media stuff you you know as as announcer Mm. that um you are there for these indelible moments in people's successes and failures at the speedway and you're what's in their head when they do that i mean you know but being announcer uh is a strange thing because uh, you had a year when you had to step away from Beach Ridge and I stepped in and, and did that. Oh, that's right. I and completely forgot about that. It was, you know, it was really funny. Andy Cusack said to me, Andy Austin's got to step away for a year. I need someone to do this and I don't know about next year, but I'm not going to tell you that you got next year. I can tell you you can do it this year, but I can't tell you anything about the future beyond that. Will you do it? Mm. And I, you know, I I like Beach Ridge, so I thought, well, well, fine, I'll go do it and I'll have as much fun as I can. Right. And um, one of the things about being the announcer is that being the announcer is like what you said about the radio show. Mm. You create your group of people who appreciate how you do it. And, you know, I'm sure when you stepped in, there were some pretty big boots to fill. And I'm sure when you first got there as announcer, um, you felt like you weren't the guy that that they were looking for. You were the new guy. You know, everybody that had done that job was a certain age. I wasn't. I didn't try to be anybody else. It's anytime you do any kind of media, you, it's, Basically, your voice on the microphone is like you were playing the guitar. You can do other things while you play the guitar. And when you're in the booth at 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 a trying to do a TV show or a radio show or announce a race, um, lots of distracting things happen. Mm-hmm. And so it's important that you get in the zone. And you were able to get in your zone and do your thing long enough so that the people could get used to it. and That's all be- it is. Because no one could have been any different than Bruce Elder, than Andy Austin. Right. I mean, it, it was just a shock. And when when I filled in that year, 
I was a little more known and I was older and so I didn't have that new kid on the block thing. Mm-hmm. But I found out very soon that No, I, nobody I, liked the new kid on the block, but that's that's fine. Um Yeah. Well, it was it was uh, it was an interesting it was an interesting time. We will ask a question of you since uh, since you you foolishly said this was my podcast it is your podcast uh, it's about you not about me well but <laughs> i had wanted to talk about 2022 because we're still race car guys where do they go how many drop out of racing how many move someplace else how does this all move and hopefully we'll have some health in the race industry because there's one less track and that will bring more commerce to the ones that are still open. And this year coming, we may see Unity back open again and have a fourth racetrack in the state of Maine. So that'll be interesting too. So, but uh, we don't know what our plan is for 2022, except for if they do take the Mad Bombers to Star, I want to drive there because uh, it's Beach Ridge. When you come off the turn at Beach Ridge, you have a time on the straightaway. <laughs> and then you're in the turn again. And then you have a time on the straightaway. Star Speedway is basically uh, a couple of really short drag strips with a big skid mark at either end. Yeah, It just, by the time you come off the turn, you're almost to the flag stand. And by the time you get to the flag stand, you're almost in the turn. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like it's really a kind of a fun place. So that'll be interesting to see if we can do a little something there. I want to thank you mm. for taking the time to come and and talk about old times and things that happened in racing over for me fifty plus years now. And well, you have a fascinating story. I think you know when people hear that Dan Wolf is going to be the guest on, you know, Open Trailer Podcast or whatever, a lot of people are like, well, who's Dan Wolf? You know, compared to somebody else that might be on the show. But it's never about the name. It's about the story and it's about the journey. And you have an amazing one for being someone from a different country to going from Massachusetts to Maine, building this incredible persona, uh, being involved with TV, having a son that's a champion. I mean, you've lived about five different lives within in racing why racing it's interesting i am not a sports fan a lot of people who are racers are you know i i haven't watched a football game i i might uh, tune into the super bowl for five minutes and look at it and have some popcorn i am a person who doesn't like to watch I like to participate I can go to the races and always find a job to do always be part of it and if you look at the guys who have the longest time in racing you say gee he's still doing something he still has a part in it you know I've got a picture of of Chummy Brown I knew you were going to say Chummy and 70 plus years 
And the, I got this fabulous picture of him. He had driven Rusty's car over the front stretch for, for the fan meet and greet. Mm-hmm. And here's this 80-something-year-old guy in the race car having a ball. Um, he's been involved in so many people's uh, careers and, and so much of racing. But like me, it works for him and it continues to work for him because he's actively doing something. He's participating. Mm-hmm. He's not a spectator. He's a participant. I used to love going to the races as a radio or TV guy and having credentials because my credentials weren't spectator. They were participant. Mm. They were, you're here working. And, you know, people will say, you know, do you, do you want to go up to the race? And I'll say, well, what am I going to do? And and they say, watch. And I go, well, maybe. But who's there that is, you know, is Johnny racing? <laughs> am I sponsoring a car? Right. Am I involved in this in some way? And so, you know, when you look at one of my favorite things, the Main Vintage Race Car Association, um, that's a, a vehicle for older guys who love racing and have that participant thing that I have and guys like Chummy Brown have because now you can be older and retired but you can still be a participant. Racing is special because there's so much of an opportunity to participate, not to be a spectator but to be a participant and that leads to the guys that have been involved for 50 years but to go back and we need to have more people working in the community because there's a lot of things that that are hard on racing right now money competing for the entertainment dollar um new people we need an influx of new people and it has become incredibly with the used car price crisis Mm. to buy an old piece of crap car to make an entry-level street stock is seven eight hundred a thousand dollars you know as johnny would say to me you can't find a camaro or a monte carlo that you can cut up for a race car for less than two grand that's the for a car to cut up for a, a race car so we need that street devil we need to figure out how to race these little cars but having that that street level car be expensive to buy that makes it hard but we've got to work together racing leads to lifetime friendships mm. And that will do it for stage number two of Dan Wolf. It was it was fun, you know. It was I say that I interviewed him, but I really think at times he was interviewing me. Uh, doesn't matter. It was uh, it was killer. Next time out, Open Trailer Podcast does something. Um, we're going a little. We're doing something a little different. Now we're at a very interesting time in main racing history, where an iconic track, Beechridge Motor Speedway, has shut down. But what happens when your favorite racetrack, when your home, shuts down? I'm going to race Oxford. I'm going to race Wiscasset. Mm. And then I jump back to Oxford and then back to Wiscasset again. So I just feel like nothing's going to feel like home. But um, I'm excited to go race somewhere else anyways. If the Oxford deal works out well and they have a good car count, I'll try that out. Um, It's just, um, I don't know. Nothing's going to really feel right, if you know what I mean. Where do they go? We'll find out next time on Open Trailer Podcast. I'm Andy Austin. Thanks for listening.